All right, everybody. I was going to have a guest on this week, but we decided to delay it until next week, and we're going to do a couple episodes with this particular guest. But uh, some things came up, and we have to delay it. So you got me again all to yourselves. Um, I just got done recording a commentary audio track for my movie Death and Life. For those of you who haven't seen it, there's a reason. And the reason is because uh, it's really artsy and therefore it wouldn't have wound up in your feed naturally unless you made a conscious effort to look for me or that particular movie. But I want to tell you something about that movie because this is really important. It's the most meaningful film I've ever made. It is the most personal movie I've made up to this date that has actually been finished. And I have to say that it's actually been finished because the one I'm working on now, Fractals, is a million times more personal. The problem with Fractals is I haven't finished it yet. But there are sister films of one another. And since Death and Life is finished, and I have some news about it, I'm gonna, I have to kind of talk about both of them simultaneously from time to time. But here's the thing about Death and Life. Listen, a Blu-ray is in the works. An optical release is in the fucking works and I just recorded the commentary for it and the reason it's in the works is because it was streaming initially uh, it was streaming uh, on Amazon Prime sometimes it was a prime available title sometimes it was rental or purchase only depending uh over the past couple of years on whether I wanted it to be available on either, I would alternate. So sometimes I made it available for Prime memberships, for Prime members. Sometimes I would make it available for just rental or purchase. I did that a lot with a lot of my movies. But this was the only movie where the people from Amazon basically said, we don't want this movie on our platform. We're banning it. You're not allowed to resubmit it. Like, really? Why? Like, I went all out for this movie. Uh, you know, I even trans had it translated into German because I'm like, this is the perfect foreign language for this movie. <laughs> no other reason other than I just felt like it had to be translated into German. Not French, you know, not Russian. Although French would have been another viable language since the French New Wave was a huge influence on the visual fabric of that particular movie, I had it translated into perfect German. And it's not even like a translation translation, it's an interpretation. So I got somebody to interpret meaning because it's so it's such a philosophically driven narrative. I said, a direct translation might not work. We need to hack into the meaning of what is being communicated. And that becomes the translation. So, identifying the difference between translation and interpretation and creating a version of the movie for the foreign market that is so stellar compared to some of the other translations that are out there for other movies, you can imagine why I was offended that I can't have this particular movie on Amazon. And not only is it not allowed there, they're not even giving me explicit information as to why. They won't tell me why. You fucking believe that shit? They won't tell me why. Except to say that we look at various viewer data to take and take into consideration their behavior. And their behavior tells us they don't like your movie and therefore your movie is not allowed on here. I'm like, okay, that makes zero sense whatsoever. And that's also really disconcerting just from a free speech standpoint and an high art standpoint. I'm not saying that my movie's high art, but I don't know. I think it is. Uh, I, so here's the thing that, here's what Death and Life is about. Death and Life is actually a movie about do you want to create disposable entertainment that makes millions of dollars or high art that makes people think that's it that's the question well I mean that's not the only question but that's one of the main questions that I had in mind while making it and it, it is a criticism of 
sort of money in the arts and how the world is hostile to the arts and how the art life is unnecessarily difficult to achieve. There's no reason why it should be difficult to live a life of creation. But it is. It is because success in the arts is purely measured by your box office take, by how much you get for a painting, by how many books are pre-sold through. Oh my God, Amazon, Amazon. Um, look, I don't want to be an Amazon hater. I don't. I'm trying really hard not to. One, I know how vicious and uh, they can be to people who criticize them. But two, I believe that everyone can be an ally. Every institution can be an ally if you just respect and understand one another. But this really grinds my gears, man, as, as that cartoon character uh, from Rhode Island would say. This grinds my gears. Uh, you know what really grinds my gears? <laughs> but, uh, they, yeah, they won't tell me any of their data points so that I can find a way around it. Because they don't want me to. And f for those of you who haven't seen Death in Life, it's not a bad movie. It's a professionally constructed movie. It's got a comfortable sound design. It's got a comfortable visual fabric. It is slow to start, but that's deliberate craft move that I made. Because the movie's meant to be something that washes over you. And this is something I talk about. I talked about in the commentary, and since it's fresh in my mind, I, I wanted to put it on this podcast. The movie is meant to be something that washes over you and sit with you after the fact. And so I, I decided I needed a device in the beginning of the movie to weed out the people who weren't ready <laughs> to have it be washed over them. And so I spent six minutes, which in movie time is a long time. But the first six minutes, we're looking at a parking garage with people walking by at the ground level, back and forth. And it's slow. And there's a deep droning sound. And there's the main character giving a voiceover commentary about the structures of society. And the parking garage levels represent that. And uh, so, you know, you got the people walking down on the lower level. And you get the BMWs parked on the higher levels and that kind of shit. And so my idea was, well, I know it's not going to be for everybody, but it'll be for enough people who are ready for it, who are in the mood for it. And so if they can get past this opening, then we got them, then they're in. They, then they can keep going because the movie picks up pace gradually as it goes to a point where I almost think the latter half of it moves too fast. The other thing is... The movie's only an hour long. It's literally 63 minutes. It's that, that is the runtime. One hour. You can't sit for an hour and digest some art philosophy, some city planning philosophy. There are classes in college that go on longer than that. Are you kidding me? But again, I don't know if that's if that's the reason, because they won't give me their data points. I'm like guesstimating what it could be. Because um, there are certainly more amateur looking and sounding movies that are on Amazon. That are getting reviews on Amazon. And I guess because they're actually getting reviews, that counts for something more than somebody who's just willing to ignore it. Which makes no sense to me whatsoever. Like whatever it is. See, it's, that's the problem. It's all guesstimation. I don't know what it is. So doesn't mean I'm not going to use them. I just pulled all, all of my films over the past couple of months. I pulled all of my films off of their streaming service. And I'm now refocusing on optical for the time being. Because uh, honestly, movie, some of my short films that, you know, they, they, they had heart and they mean something to me personally. They're not better works of craft, right? They're okay having those on there because they got reviews and they got rated high. And one of them, 
opens with a sex scene and has a pretty girl on the poster. And so it's just like, well, of course it's going to get rated higher. <sighs> I mean, we, what does this say about the future of art house cinema? What does this say about the future of art in general? If a streaming platform, which is the main route to go digest content, is saying this is too far out there for us, but we're not going to tell you why. That's bad hoodoo. And uh, this is why I think there's a future for optical media. And why I'm now going to be investing in a, a legitimately authored Blu-ray disc. You know, a lot of my discs were done through Encore or DVD Studio Pro, where I would like bang out an ISO, upload it to CreateSpace, uh, which is now owned by Amazon, and I would have them author the disc on demand. And so I could sell my DVDs through Amazon that way, and it was wonderful. And while I'm still willing to do that, I can't depend on it anymore because who knows? Maybe they'll come for optical movies next if they don't get rated well enough, you know? So I'm going to be investing in a professionally authored Blu-ray of Death and Life. That's why I just recorded the commentary for it. And uh, I'm going to have all kinds of content that about the movie, about my process making the movie. I'm going to develop content to kind of explain wh why this is important. Why these sort of data analysts shouldn't be responsible for curating what you have access to as a moviegoer. Because my no-budget movie might not mean much, but I know I'm not going to be the last one. And I know I'm not going to be the most important one. Like, you're eventually going to get people who are going to create documentaries and films critical of people and institutions that maybe somebody like Jeff Bezos needs or likes. And he's going to, he could be in a position to be like, well, use data against them and take them down. You know, I could see that happen. I could see this sort of like a, the way they tried to shut down Fahrenheit 9-11 when that was going to come out. The Weinsteins ended up buying it and releasing it. I could see, I could see that happening. I could see, you know, somebody making a movie about the loss of the brick and mortar store and not painting Jeff Bezos in a, in a good light. And then them saying, well, we don't really see an audience for it or we're not getting... You're not getting good enough reviews to warrant us having it on here, so we're pulling it down, you know? Now, of course, that would probably get publicity, right? It's so Netflix or somebody will buy it. But that's not the point. The point is, if you're going to open up your streaming service so that people can, filmmakers can go and add their own work on their own accord, there needs to be an agreement that you won't pull it down unless there's a violation of a specific term, a specific guideline. And they didn't do that. They just didn't do that. And I am upset about it. I've been upset without it, about it since it happened last spring. I just didn't know what to do about it. And so what's been happening what happened was yesterday they sent me a survey asking for my feedback on their video on demand services as a filmmaker. And I'm like, all right, sure. And so all of these emotions came pouring out and I explained to them why this is bad for society. This is bad for the arts. This, this world is already hostile to the arts enough. Don't be any more hostile because we're going to start to bite back. And that's what I'm doing now. And so what's happening now is I'm collaborating with a, a, a professional PR data person, somebody who really knows analytics. And uh, we're constructing an article, collaborating on an article that we're going to publish on a professional website. We've already made this deal. Talking about why this is bad and why they need to be more transparent about their data and, and it's not an attack. It's more of here's what's happened. Here's why it's bad. Here's how we can make things better. That's all it is. But then also for me as an artist, 
the decision to go with a professionally authored Blu-ray. You know, was a last resort because they also control the means of production for on-demand Blu-ray. And so, yeah, maybe I will, maybe I won't sell there. I don't know. But at least I'll have the ability to sell it somewhere, even if it's in my own store. So that's what I wanted to start with because coming off the commentary and coming off that survey and all that and having things develop the way they're developing, it was important for me to just kind of bounce off that energy. Initially, I was just kind of go right into some, uh, some of the content for this particular episode that I had planned. I didn't plan on talking about death and life, but because it developed over the course of this day, it just ended up being that. But what I was going to talk about was cameras because it is a cinema life podcast and I haven't really talked about cameras that much. So I'm not a, I was trying not to make this about technology, but filmmakers want, I guess, want to hear about technology. I'm a filmmaker. Many of my listenerships are, uh, listeners are going to be filmmakers too, right? You're either going to be a professional filmmaker, an amateur filmmaker, a film student, or somebody who's just dipping their toes in to see if this is a medium that they could possibly deal with. So why am I going to talk about cameras? Because somebody asked me to. (laughs) I've been asking people to, to ask me questions or to offer me ideas on what you'd like to hear me talk about. Well, somebody's like, why don't you talk about cameras? You're a filmmaker. That's not how they put it, but how it was is... What are you shooting on? What have you shot on? And what do you think about the film versus digital thing, which is like the oldest freaking argument debate in this industry? And I always roll my eyes at that because it's not a debate. Film wins, hands down. (laughs) If you guys know me and you know my work, you understand why. I'm really into grit, and I'm really into real, and I'm really into tangible. You know, film, celluloid film is like oil paint. HD video is like watercolor. Cinema raw video is like acrylic. So, but not even acrylic, like... A photograph of acrylic. A digital photograph of acrylic. That's my view. But I've also worked with film. And I would rather shoot for the rest of my life a 4 by 3 16 millimeter film than any cinema, digital cinema camera. You see, the goal back in the day When I was starting out, I I went to film school between 2000 and 2001. It was a one-year technical program at the Vancouver Film School. I hated that place. I don't recommend it. This isn't me saying go there. I'm just saying I went there and I hated it. But that's where I got hands-on experience working with actual celluloid film, cinema film, 16-millimeter film in a 4x3 frame. Not super 16, just regular 16 I would rather shoot that on any one of my projects than any digital camera that's currently available. And the only reason is because I'm really into the art and craft of it. Having something tangible that I can see, feel, and touch that I know exists, like film, that image exists physically in the world. You can hold it up to the sunlight and see it frame for frame for frame for frame. You can see the soundtrack on there. You can see it go, you know, you can see the, the, the lines of the soundtrack bouncing back and forth, back and forth, because it's an optical track. You know? It's beautiful, man. It really exists. It's part of our world. And digital. Digital doesn't exist. It's not real. It's not tangible. It's ones and zeros it's fucking binary code okay that has to be interpreted by software just to be uh to give you a 
what is called a simulated image. None of the color you see is really that color. It's a trick of the eye. You know, like the browns. I'm looking at a still frame of fractals right now because I've been editing it. Right? And so I got my, my Adobe Premiere up and I got a still frame of fractals because I'm editing a scene in a kitchen. And the cabinets behind the main actors are brown. But I know on celluloid, they'd be brown. But here, they're not really brown. They just seem brown. Really, they're just orange. They're, they're a version of orange, and they seem brown because uh, there's a trick that, the, pro, that the, you know, the program does to make by putting other colors and other light and other shades around it. It can give you the impression of brown. And I know I'm not doing justice to the science of this thing, but I'm just trying to give you why I prefer film over digital is because film is actually real. Digital is not. Digital is um, a simulation. If that makes any kind of sense. And, you know, it's like, you know, I'm going to tell you something straight up. I went into the Apple store before the pandemic went down. And I decided to sit in on one of their tutorials about how to use the iPad to paint. You'll never have, this is the spiel the guy gave. You'll not have to buy brushes. You'll not have to buy canvas. That's all in the past. It's all obsolete. This is the future. You can paint with the iPad. And he did it demonstrate it. And I'm like, he's like, look at all these colors. You get so many colors. I'm like, well, those aren't real colors. They, they, they seem real, but they're not. They don't exist. And also, like, there's something... There's something about going to an art store. And I learned this during the making of Death and Life, and I further learned this during the making of Fractals, when I was really learning my way around these mediums that I had no experience with. Part of the, the making of these two movies was to dabble into mediums, artistic mediums, that I that I never bothered with because I was interested in them. So I would go into Blick, which is an art store in New York City, and... Sometimes I'd go into Michael's if I was upstate, because I occasionally go upstate. And I would look at all of the different acrylic paints, right? And the different oil paints. And the difference, the differences between the raw canvas and the primed canvas. And there's something about just the tactile sensation of working with them that an experienced artist can vouch for. It's nothing. Nothing like swiping swiping your finger across an iPad. I would never, ever purchase an iPad for that reason. But I will always dump money into Canvas and paint. The only reason, the only reason I'm not still shooting film is purely financial. Kodak has gone way out of their way to make it totally inaccessible to civilians who aren't backed by major studios. And not just Kodak, too, but also the, the companies that process and tell us any, the films. So it's just like, you know, I, I, you know um, around the time that I was planning Death in Life, I was also shooting Super 8. I bought a Minolta Super 8 camera off of eBay. And I ordered some film rolls from Kodak. I ordered some 50D co uh, color and then some Tri-X black and white reversal. And I just like, I need to get my hands back on this. I need to just, what? and so I, you know, I think I bought like 10 rolls, five each, black and white, five color. And I just shot some preliminary footage for Death and Life on Super 8. And, uh. Man, it felt good. It felt good here. The feeling, the vibration of the motor going around, you know. We were exposing negative, you know, exposing the reversal film in some cases. And it felt great. And actually, the Super 8 was relatively affordable, much more than I thought it would be. The problem is the developing costs. So I spent about $200 on film, right? 
on those 10 rolls. Guess how much I, I spent on developing it? Guess. 1500 bucks. 10, ro 10 rolls of Super 8 sent to a lab in LA. 1500 bucks, and they didn't even tell us any of it. They didn't even tell us any of it. They just developed it and sent it back, and then I had to use this, this um, really cheap, crappy film recorder from the Sarah Lawrence College AV office to just get it into some kind of viewable format. But even then, it couldn't do the color because uh, the color film had like a layer. I forget what they call this layer off the top of my head, but um, it was like an orange layer that had to be peeled off. And it's usually done during a professional telecine. And so it's something to do with like protecting the image from some kind of highlight issue or something. I don't remember. But I loved the idea of going back and working with film. Fuck, I'd do a feature on Super 8 nowadays if I could. But, you know, these institutions take advantage of people's passions for the mediums. And I see it in art stores, too. There's no reason why paint should be as expensive as it is, why canvas should be as expensive as it is, because it's all manufactured industrial through industrial processes. It's not manufactured by hand. But they know that they can get away with it because people have a passion for this stuff. And um, unfortunately, digital's cheaper. But it's not like I started out on film. You know, I started out on standard definition video. So it's not that far of a reach for me to stay in the digital realm. But you really have to have a passion for filmmaking, man, because it's hard to be in sort of a space where you'll almost assuredly be taken advantage of by the people who control production, by the people who control the production of the tools. Um, so I'm going to quickly, I'm going to quickly digress, uh, go down the list of, of the cameras I've used over my entire history because somebody asked me to do that. I'm going to do it. I promise I would do what you asked me. So as long as it's not too humiliating, I will happily come oblige or comply. I serve you, my dear audience. I serve you. So I started making films in high school, right? My first camera, though, wasn't a movie camera. It was a photo camera. It was a Polaroid camera. And I still have all the photos I shot with that Polaroid camera. I hated that camera. <laughs> I didn't think any of the photos looked good at all, though in retrospect, I think that it, those machines turned out beautiful images. It just didn't pull up, pull, uh, produce the images I wanted at that time. And then in high school... I started taking a video technology course. So when I went to high school, I went to Portland High School in Portland, Maine. But I also went to another high school at the same time. And that was Portland Arts and Technology High School. And that was a vocational school. How my schedule worked was in the mornings, I'd go to vocational school. And then in the afternoons, I'd go to a regular high school. This was an option that I took because I didn't want to go to regular high school at all. And so I thought, well, if I could only do half days, I could probably get through this. Despite the fact that I graduated from my BA with a one with a three point nine eight GPA. Three point nine eight GPA. In high school I was not a good academic. That came later. So, for the first two years in high school, when I went to Vogue, I took graphic arts and printing, and I learned how to do offset press printing, I learned how to do page layout through, um, uh, a now, it's a now obsolete program called PageMaker. I learned how to do sort of, um, to create the plates for the offset presses, where you go, 
you, you, you go on a page maker and you print out the design and then you take that design into a black, a black room or a dark room and you photograph, uh, you photograph it and then you develop that photo, that, that image using a, th a three or four tray developing process where, you know, you have your developer, your fixer, your, st oh, no, your developer, your stop bath, your fixer or something like that. I don't remember what the order was. It was a long time ago. I remember developer stop bath fixer, and I don't even know if it's that's the, if that's the right order. <laughs> but uh, technically, I guess that was a camera, and that even though it's the size of a wall, and you could only use it in a dark room. But that's another camera, and then at some point during that, I got access to my mom's thirty-five millimeter camera, which she purchased because she took a photography class. Uh, and so whenever I get my hands on film I guess I would use it but that wasn't that much and I didn't really focus that hard on taking pictures but I graduated with a diploma from the graphic arts and printing program after two years because it's a two-year course so for my last two years of high school I went back to Vogue and took a course called video technology and multimedia this was a new course at the time now it's a very old course um, it's over 20 years old by this point. And it's now called New Media, from what I understand. Back then, I don't know how it is now or what its purpose is now. But back then, it was basically training people to work in sort of the video production side of news. So a lot of it was how to shoot newsreel. And all of the equipment was news equipment. And so the cameras shot on VHS and SVHS. Now I never used SVHS because I just wanted to shoot footage that I could view at home. And since almost everybody just has a regular VCR. Kitty? Kitty! I'm recording a podcast. <laughs> That's my cat. One of them. She's decided to say hello. Anyway. Where was I? Yes, so even though I could record in the slightly higher quality SVHS, I did not. I recorded in VHS. And I didn't record really any news-like material whatsoever. I went straight to narrative storytelling because that's what was more interesting. That's what I decided that if I was going to be productive, I wanted to be productive by simulating and imitating what I saw on TV in terms of what I liked. So I liked movies, so I was going to try to make movies. And the first semester of my first year, it was in uh, the fall of 1998. I was a junior in high school, and I shot a bunch of my first short films then. Some got me award acknowledgments through student film festivals which I never even went to because I didn't know I was in them. My teacher apparently submitted them on my behalf and they played them and didn't tell us. And then they sent the certificates in the mail. <laughs> it was a weird time. I learned how to edit on a program called Media 100. So the idea was you were supposed to learn how to do tape-to-tape editing since some news stations were already doing that, were still doing that. I said, I don't want to do tape to tape. That looks boring. I want to do this advanced looking program here. And so nobody knew how to teach uh, nonlinear editing at the time. Nobody had used it. We The school bought them for us, but nobody bothered to learn how to use them. So nobody could teach them. And uh, this guy, Greg, who I went to school with, um, had dabbled in it a little bit the previous year. So, so he said, well, here's kind of how I did it last year. And we put together a short little movie of us fighting, which I still have to this day. And we synced it to, to music for movies like Alien or Mortal Kombat. Um, very much a high school, school video. Uh, and uh, that was all I needed in terms of a tutorial. After that, I was shooting and importing footage and assembling these things. And I did that all through 98 and, and the spring of 99. 
And then over the summer, I'm like, well, going into my senior year of high school, wouldn't it be great if I had a feature film that I could use as a calling card and really become a filmmaker? By that point, I knew I was going to become a filmmaker. I enjoyed this process way too much. I was, I was really vibing with it. It was working for me. I was getting recognition that I'd never gotten before. You, and I was getting it from people who hated my guts my whole life, who, not, who always doubted me. I'm just like, film, movies are my medium. It was like, I can only imagine how, you know, a, a famous artist feels when they discover the paintbrush. It was like that. Um, it just vibed. So over the summer, and even the even during the school year, I was started writing screenplays. I remember I went into the high school library at one time to get the only book they had on how to write a, how to properly format a screenplay, and I learned my way around that format my junior year of high school. And so I was writing short screenplays, and then over the summer I wrote a long screenplay that I intended to make with the people in my hometown, which I read to you guys already. If you go back a few episodes, you can hear me reading The Alternative. It's a hoot. I was laughing most of the time. Uh, I wrote that, but that didn't pan out. And so going into my senior year, I wrote another screenplay of, called 16 Stories. And the idea came from a friend of mine. And uh, But I ended up writing it. And... It was the first project I really made where I followed the script as much as I could. (laughs) Not entirely, but as much as possible. And it had a huge cast. By that point, enough people had seen what I've been trying to do with these videos that they wanted to help out. And so I got a lot more people trying to be actors and... Kitty trying to be actors and kind of taking on roles here and there. And uh, that was shot on both VHS and the first digital camera I ever got access to, which was a digital eight camcorder. And it belonged to the mom of the guy who gave me the idea for 16 stories. And I borrowed that for some sequences, but they wouldn't let me use it for the whole movie. I'm like, as much as I tried, they just, I guess to them, it was an expensive piece of equipment to me. It's just like a tool that I should have access to because I know how to use it. Uh, so 16 stories were shot on those two formats. And that's the movie that I submitted with my film school application. And I went off to film school. I'm not going to go too, too hard into my senior year of high school because I have a lot of feelings about it and I have a lot of negative feelings towards my my uh, guidance counselor at the time who basically told me to join a union and go, go to straight to work because there was no way I was going to succeed in academia. Um, yeah, she said that shit. But we could talk about that some other time. In film school, I didn't get to make any of the projects that I I was hoping to make. I mean, when I was in high school, I was producing so many projects. In in film school, I didn't produce any. I made a few short, dumb videos here and there, but they really wouldn't let you. You know, they had these, this new video, digital video format called mini DV, right? And the equipment room had mini DV camcorders, but you weren't allowed to check them out. I couldn't take them out. That's the most, one of them, at this point, one of the oldest, most disposable formats there is. But like back then, that was considered expensive and you weren't allowed to use them. So even though like our class projects were shot on film, our, our, you know, our narrative projects were shot on film, our documentary projects were shot on DV, which is like mini DV, but bigger cassettes. Uh, if you wanted to do anything outside of the class projects, you had to take out, either have your own camera or take out one of their analog video eight cameras. So I did that. 
so all of my personal footage that I produced while I was living in Vancouver was shot on a eight millimeter analog video camcorder from Sony. I didn't get to shoot mini DV until I got back to Maine and my friend Brandon uh, had one. And I said, hey, let's make a short film with it and we'll take it really seriously and do it by the script and we'll premiere it over the summer. And so we did that and we shot it on a Sony TRV 900 mini DV. That was Hero for a Day, which I recently restored in advance of the 20th anniversary. And then somehow, someway, my household got a hold of a couple of different Sony 8mm and Hi8 analog video cameras. And so 2002 through 2003, I shot on those quite extensively until after we premiered that short film, somehow I decided to buy a Canon mini DV camcorder, but it was so inferior in quality to what I'd shot the film on that I couldn't even really do anything with it by that point. So then I tried upgrading it after I moved to New York in 03 to a Sony mini DV, but on the cheap end. And still, it just wasn't cutting it, man. There's something about that Sony TRV 900 that was so crisp that every other version of the mini DV format wasn't cutting it. And then um, I didn't make films for a couple of years while I was in, when, after I moved to New York because I was preoccupied with just surviving. New York City just takes the wind out of you, man. And, and if you go there to create, you really have to fight for that life because people people instantly like see you as a newbie and try to take advantage of you. And so all the resources you think you're going to put into creation suddenly get put into defense against people like that. And so um, for the first couple of years, I couldn't create. And there's a lot of different stories that I could go into and will probably eventually with this podcast. But um, this isn't the podcast about me moving to New York and all the bullshit I went through when I first came here. This is a movie about cameras. So after I moved to New York, I sold the two mini DV cameras I had purchased because they weren't cutting it. And eventually, though, I met some people at one of my day jobs that wanted to make a movie with me because they'd found out what I'd been doing and that I had in Maine and, and that I'd gone to film school and all that. And one of the supervisors at this particular workplace had come into possession of a Sony VX2000E. It's the European edition of the VX2000, which is an upgrade from the Sony TRV900. It's still a mini DV camera, but it has a bigger lens, better sort of internal components and it said it records in PAL and that was appealing to me because PAL is 25 frames a second which brings us closer to 20 the film frame rate of 24 frames a second if you're a filmmaker you understand why this is more appealing because the movement of the video looks more filmic so I'm like we should we should shoot on that where did you get this camera you don't seem like a filmmaker he's like oh my buddy worked security at uh, JFK airport and found it in the in the lost and found and decided to take it I'm like oh shit somebody somebody probably a tourist lost their camera and it wound up in the hands of a security guard from JFK who then gave it to this guy who was a retail manager and then he lent it to us to make our movie in 2005 so in the summer of 2005 I shot a movie called the Long Island Project on the Sony VX2000E mini DV camcorder, beautiful camcorder. And uh, I edited that. Um, and uh, we're not here to talk about editing systems, are we? Maybe that could be a different episode. Because getting access to editing uh, systems was a whole nother thing. Um, what else? So that was the last movie I shot before I started buying real cameras that I would lean in on. So I had this photo, this digital photo camera. It was a Canon point and shoot, but I don't remember the, the, it was a cheap one too. I don't remember the name of it, but it had a small standard definition video component to it, but it wasn't good video. It was genuinely really bad video actually, but I shot a movie called Spite and Dival on it and, uh, 
<laughs> it was a bloody, bloody short movie, and it got lots of views on YouTube. And uh, my initial, one of my initial YouTube channels did really well because of it. Um, I no longer have that YouTube channel, but I've gone through several by this point. And then I had another, uh, had another mini DV camcorder, which I don't know if it was Samsung or Canon or was one of those second those manufacturers who weren't Sony and it was such a terrible quality camcorder I only shot one short film on it called Croton Falls and then after that I'm just like I can't do another project on this this is terrible and then uh, in 08 I founded a business officially through the state of New York and with that business I purchased my first high-definition camera and I was able to shoot my first high-definition movie that was the Canon XHA1. Actually, this was not an... I founded the company in 08, but I didn't buy the camera until 09 because I needed to establish a line of credit to do so. And so this, this, this camera shoots on DV tapes, but it can shoot in HDV. So it, show, it shoots HD, 1920 by 1080 HD uh, at 60 frames per second. A lot of information there. And I shot some of my most... My first like real films there like the ones that got recognized by film festivals Carolina Virginia was shot on that camera uh, Lipstick Lies was shot on that camera a lot of my first clients uh, had content produced on that camera and the reason I bought it is because I there was this there were two two videos I saw with this camera there was a short film that that uh, I saw from a, a filmmaker back in Maine was called uh, the hell's it called? Sofa King. It was called Sofa King. Or Sofa King. <laughs> and I love the way that it was lit, and I love the way that it translated all that light into footage. And then um, there was a, like a, 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 a scenic, like a nature scenic that some guy on Vimeo had. I'm like, all right, I could see me making a movie with this camera. So that's why I ended up springing for that. And that was a number, number of years I shot with that camera. And then as the head started to die, I sold it to a wedding video production company in Queens. And they, and they were going to use that as like their third or fourth camera if the bride demanded more than two cameras. I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is perfect for that. <laughs> I told them. And he said, okay. And so he got a really good deal. Paid only like a couple hundred bucks for it. And then I ended up, ended up moving. I ended up getting priced out of Manhattan, and I ended up moving. And after we settled down, uh, we, where we ended up, um, I got a Canon Rebel. I think it was a T3i. And so there was a actually Lipstick Lies had mostly been shot on the XHA1 by that point, and digitized, but there were some pickups I needed. To done and so I did them on the Rebel so Lipstick Lies was a mix of both of those cameras and then after Lipstick Lies I went into a project in 2013 which was a complete disaster it's the only union production I ever directed didn't even get to finish the movie but I had a professional DP who had a Red Epic 5k and this was the first time I shot anything above HD, uh, or any of my films were shot above HD, but it was also the first time I wasn't personally shooting the movie myself. I wrote it, and I directed it. And I was editing it. But that movie couldn't be finished for a lot of reasons. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, that's a whole podcast by itself, and I'm not ready to go there yet, because I have a lot of thoughts about it, and a lot of... You know, I've spent the last, since 2013, I've spent the years philosophizing and sort of just kind of going over what art means to me because of that experience. And But as good as the footage looks, though, I, I found the red workflow to be totally bonkers ridiculous in terms of just how difficult it is to work with that footage. And so I vowed never to shoot on red again. The, the ecosystem of that company is too expensive and 
absurd and the workflow is just disgustingly overwhelming that there's just no way that I could be genuinely creative with just how ridiculous that camera is. And so I'm not a fan. But what happened was Black Magic came onto the scene. But by this point, I had gone back to school. And I, was, I decided I wasn't going to make a movie as long as I was in school. I decided I, one of the things that the Red production drove me to was enormous depression. So enormous, in fact, that, you know, I had my foot up on the stool. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, I went back to school to get my head out of it. And it really took almost my entire undergraduate experience for me to find myself again, to f for me to find my voice again as a creator. And for my one of my capstone projects, which is a big project I did for credit, I decided to film, I, I decided to buy, use some grant money that I had acquired and buy a used Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, a first-generation camera. These are um, HD cameras. They shoot raw, but they don't shoot anything higher than HD. And the, the sensor is about the size of a Super 16 frame of film. And I bought it used off eBay. And I, I said, for less than 1000 Now you can get them for less than 500 But back then, it was a good deal. Uh, and I said, I'll use this, and, I'm, and I will shoot sort of a second a second wave of footage because I never really finished shooting the movie in 2013 that drove me to depression the production fell apart and I know I'm not going into too many details about it because I'm not ready to but one of the things I needed to do is I needed to navigate out of the headspace of that production and in order to do that I had to produce something that pertain to it. So what I decided to do was write sort of a short short vignette, about 20 pages long, of a parallel story that happened after the events of the, of the first movie. And so, and the idea that I had was I was going to take and pepper the vignette in between the original footage that I had shot in 2013. And I'd started doing that. And I had an assembly. And I even turned a low-resolution assembly over to my mentor for credit. And then the hard drive, the there was a flood, and the hard drive got damaged. So I don't even have that, right? There's no movie. But I got the credit, so it doesn't really matter anyway. Um, and and it, I realized this over the years, I didn't want... I don't want to put on a movie that makes me feel so bad that I can't watch it ever. I want to be able to watch the content I create and feel good about it. And if I can't, then there's no point in doing it. That's the other thing I realized about myself during this process was if I feel like I'm being taken advantage of if the project isn't the thing everybody's in it into this for, then I need to shut it down and retool how I do it. And I did that with fractals. I didn't feel like everybody was in it for the project. So I shut it down and I rebooted it a few months later with a whole different group of people who were in it for the right reasons. Uh, that's just one of those things that you learn how to do as you do them. But you have to be willing to go back to them even after the big failure, after the big tragedy takes place. You have to be willing to step up and say, all right, that happened. Can I just take a breath and stomach going through it again, but yielding a little bit more control so it doesn't happen this way again, you know? And so that's what I had to learn how to do. And then, but with that small uh, black magic first generation HD camera, I shot Death and Life. And a whole bunch of experimental films too, but Death and Life was the big one I shot with that because that was the first real camera I had that turned out cinema quality footage that could shoot raw sort of log quality footage. 
Never had access to something like that before. And that was just, that blew my mind, man. And it still blows my mind. I used it again on fractals for some stuff. But with fractals, so I had had a bit of a windfall back in 2019. Because I secured a client that really respected and appreciated who I was as a creator and was willing to pay their bills. <laughs> which was always really hard for me to find. And so what I did was... I invested in the new Blackmagic Pocket 6K resolution cinema camera, which is a it's a 6K resolution raw sensor uh, camera that uh, the, it's a 35 millimeter size sensor. It shoots raw log files, and um, I got a Rokinon prime lens set. Like I really went hard on the cinema, the idea that I'm, I'm creating cinema, not video, and so I I don't invest anymore in sort of video I invest in cinema and i really built out my offering around this 6k raw camera so i got the prime lens set um which i haven't fully completed but i've, I've got i got it mostly complete i've got the 16 the 24 the 35 millimeter and the 85 millimeter i just got to get the 50 and the 135 and i'm done and I got, I built out my, my gear, my gear list. So like I got all the bells and whistles to make the camera work. I've got an H4N, a Zoom H4N Pro. I've got a Zoom H6 and I've got two um, Sennheiser shotgun mics. I've got stands so that I could do mic placement all around the room. I've got other types of mics too. And I got a wireless kit as well. Um, I basically like the one thing that the thing the the project in 2013 taught me was I have to be ready to do everything myself because I I no longer trust crew to be to be in this for the reasons that I'm in this and so uh, I no longer depend on anybody but myself to make my movies so I've invested hard in being able to do everything myself so. You know, I own all my C-stands, all my lights, all my audio gear, all my image generation gear. Uh, you name it, man. And uh, that's what I made fractals with, primarily. Now, we had a false start in, in the winter and spring, but then the pandemic happened. And when I tried getting it going again... I never really felt like the people who were on, initially I never really felt like the people who were initially on board were on board for the right reasons, but I liked how they read and I liked how they looked and interacted on camera. And so I really wanted to give them a shot, but in later May, early June of 2020, when I knew that the city was gonna start bouncing back from, sh from being shut down, I started putting feelers out there and I never really felt like they were all that into it. It was always about, well, what are you offering in terms of financial? I'm like, okay, no thanks, guys. Like, I know everybody has to make a living, but I shouldn't, you know, these projects to me, I want people who are okay with what I can give them and, and aren't going to demand that I try to claw my, you know, claw the back of my bank account to make them happy like I shouldn't have to do that um, they know when they're applying that this is an out-of-pocket production and even though I'm offering some money I'm not offering all all the money you need to pay your bills like I, I make that very very clear and because I can't like it's next to impossible to be an employer unless you're financed by a studio that's just the reality of it because it's not just about paying people you know 100 here 100 there if it was just about that i'd do it it's about also being in this system where you know the government is charging you for that transaction and requiring you to put away for insurance and requiring you know you do work as comp payouts and all that bullshit. Which is fine. It's part of society. But I'm not there yet. I hope to be there eventually. 
But right now I can only give people their transportation, their food, and a per diem. So when they apply, they know they're applying to this. And it baffles me that they think that it's okay to demand more when it's not a fully financed production. So I had to lower the age range for the actors because a lot of the actors my age who I write for now have families and they're, or they're, you know, they have responsibilities beyond uh, this, right? And so they have all those responsibilities are rooted in financing, right? Got to clothe your kid, you got to feed your kid, that kind of thing. So I had to lower the age range of the characters in order to get people who had the luxury to be able to do it, right? So uh, actually Jan had a good exp uh, word for this. She, she described it as it is a privilege to be able to do this, these projects, because they're highly creative, yes, and they're rewarding in the long run, but because they're not paid, uh, they're a privilege, and only privileged people are capable of doing it. And that makes total sense because the two leads at the time we were filming lived with their parents. We're probably on their parents' insurance. Uh, and so we had to retool a lot of it for sort of a younger demographic. Uh, or some of the older people that came in for day parts had significant others who were holding up the fort back in their homes, you know, like financially. And so... It is a privilege to be able to do these things, and I recognize that. But that doesn't mean that not, you know, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, you know, if you have obligations, right? It's about picking and choosing where you spend your free time. You know, I said this in the first episode, the reason I'm so productive is because I make my life this. It's all I do. I haven't been on vacation since 2006. Did you know that? If you listen to the first episode, you'd know that. But everything I do goes into being able to make these possible. Well, not everybody pursuing this is like that. Most people are just looking for it to fit the format of work so that they can go to work and then come home and play. To me, this is both. This is me working, but this is also me playing. You know, this is the wave function. You know, they want to collapse the wave function and say it's just this. But I'm like, no, baby. I'm, I'm all about the wave function. I'm all over. This is everything for me. This is all possibilities. You scientists out there, you physicists, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, this was a great podcast. I had a lot of fun on this. Uh, as you could, you could hear, I was getting tense with some of that stuff because I, it still doesn't sit well with me. And I think when I do tackle the 2013 shit, I'm going to have to go down. I'm going to have to have a foil to talk to me about it. So we'll have a guest, right? And I'll have a, like a list of points to go over. And then you guys will find out what happened, at least from my perspective. But that won't be for a while, not for a long time. So next week, we're going to have a special guest. We're going to have it for both. We're going to have a special guest on Monday, and we're going to have a special guest midweek. And uh, I hope that you enjoy those podcasts. And I also hope you have enjoyed this one. And I look forward to updating you on the Death and Life Blu-ray release. And uh, keep in mind what I said about streaming services hindering art and free speech it is a genuine concern now as an artist who doesn't always create under uh, the incentive of uh, under economic incentives uh, i depend on some level of external financing to make what i do possible this is where you, this is the part that you skip over, right? I have a Patreon. I need patrons to sign on to Patreon and become patrons of me. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know how to fucking do that, to be honest with you. You know, I go on there, I set up my 
my profile. I create my nine tiers and I try to do it so that it's about the art, not about, you know, me becoming somebody who has to constantly be mailing out things to people. I don't want to make my life about that. I want to make my life about creation, creating art. So I create nine tiers that where the reward structure is rooted in my ability to keep creating art. So if you're interested in helping me do that and you, and you can check it out, man, maybe, I, I mean, maybe this is something for you to, to become a part of what I'm trying to do here. Uh, imagine the places we could go if I was a financed artist, if I was a fully financed filmmaker, imagine what I could do. I've never been before. It's the first time for everything. Anyway, guys, this is my uh, my midweek Cine Life podcast, and I hope that it was useful to you. I hope it was fun. I hope it was enlightening and that uh, it inspired you to f- at least think about art and where art sits in our society. I think that was the big subject for today. Just how hard the world makes it for people who just want to sit and do this. And uh, I'll philosophize with you more next week. Thanks, guys.